we are continuing to talk about some of the great stories of the Bible. And today we're going to be talking about the story of Moses. And uh, I'm going to be reading our scripture from Exodus 32 where it's appropriate in the story. So I'll get to it kind of partway through the sermon. So far, you, what you need to kind of get into the story. Okay, so what's happening at the beginning of Exodus is the people have been in Egypt for several generations. And uh, if you remember stories from previous sermons, we know that Joseph got sold into slavery. And we okay, Jeff? Joseph got sold into slavery, and uh, that put him in Egypt in a, as a slave. But in the end, he gets to be kind of the head of Egypt and brings his whole family to Egypt to survive a famine. Well, now they have stayed there for a long time, and they have reproduced, and they have grown as a family, just like God had promised Abraham it would happen. And so they're now not just a family, okay? Remember, Joseph had 11 brothers, okay? They're now becoming this big family. And the text tells us that a pharaoh comes to power in Egypt that doesn't know the story of Joseph. He doesn't, he doesn't know who these people are. All he knows is there's this growing people that seem to have some power, that seem to be a pretty tight-knit community, and uh, he knows this is a threat to him. Where are we coming from, Jeff? Huh? Probably the fans? Well, we don't want to turn those off. I'll keep backing up. Um, <laughs> So Pharaoh decides to oppress the people. What does he do? He makes them be slaves. He makes them work. He makes them build bricks so that they uh, can build the great, the great pyramids. The great, I mean, if you've seen pictures of Egypt, you see these great feats that they didn't have cranes for, you understand? How do they build these giant buildings? With slave labor. And so he starts to put these people down. And in fact, he gets this plan for a, for a time period. He kills all the, the male children so that they can't produce, the family can't grow. Now understand how cruel this is, right? You're treating them like animals. You're treating them like things, not like people. But there's a story about these two people, Amram and his wife, Jacobed. And they have a baby boy that's born. Now they already have an older boy, Aaron, and they have a girl, Miriam, but Moses, this boy that they have, is set to be killed. And so what do they do? Well, they put him in a basket. We're remembering our Sunday school, right? They put him in a basket and send him down the river. That would be the Nile River, probably. Miriam sort of watches from the reeds until finally he's found. But he's found by the daughter of Pharaoh, one of the princesses of Egypt. Now, Pharaoh would have had a lot of daughters. There would have been a lot of these people uh, that were part of his family because he would have had a lot of wives. Um, but one of these daughters is, is bathing. She's in the Nile and she finds this baby and decides to raise the baby as her own. And uh, in this miraculous moment, they'd say, well, what, what we really need is somebody that can be the kind of the mother to this and can kind of be the, the nursery and the, the taking care of this child. And who are we going to get? Well, they end up finding finding Miriam, and Miriam goes back and gets Jacobed, and it turns out the mother gets to raise the boy after all. And Moses is spared. He grows up in Pharaoh's house. For about 40 years, he lives in the king's house. We are told that one day he sees an Egyptian beating one of the Hebrews. You remember this story from Sunday school? 
Okay, so he's now about 40 years old. And he, at this point, ought to be used to the Jews getting beaten, right? He ought to be used to this arrangement, but for some reason this bothers him. And we're, we're not totally sure uh, um, how much he knows or when he knows that he's actually Jewish and not Egyptian. And uh, there's all kinds of discussion about that. And if you watch stories like the Ten Commandments or the cartoon The Prince of Egypt, they always have to guess. Like, when does Moses, does he know from the beginning that he's actually Jewish? We don't quite know. But he goes and he protects this man and ends up killing this Egyptian that was beating him. And he buries the body and he thinks he's gotten away with it. But then he finds out as, as he's in discussion with people, no, people know what he has done. Eventually the Pharaoh finds out what he's done and he's forced to flee. He goes to the other side of the Sinai Peninsula, this place called Midian. And for another 40 years, he lives out in the desert. He works with sheep. He finds a man named Jethro and marries one of his daughters named Zipporah. Uh, actually, her name comes from the name for beautiful. And we found this out. Mandy and I were looking this up because I said Zipporah and she thought I said Sephora. Okay, like the makeup. But it's the same root. It's the same root, actually, for beauty. Okay, so Zipporah and Sephora, it's the same basic uh, word. Moses has children. I wonder how often, though, he thought of Egypt. I wonder how often he looked back at the horizon and thought of his people still in slavery. I wonder how often he was grateful that he had gotten out, but he knew there were all kinds of other people that had not gotten out, that they were still stuck there. All the while, he didn't know that God was preparing him for his future. Because he's a shepherd in the desert. You know what he's really good at? Keeping living things alive in the desert. He gets a 40-year school in staying alive in some of the same deserts he's eventually going to lead people through. One day, he's out with his sheep, and he sees what we typically call what? The burning bush. That's right. Uh, except what the text says is that it's a bush that's on fire, but not, uh, it's not being consumed by the fire. So we call it the burning bush. I wonder if we should call it the not burning bush. Okay? Because that's the amazing part. I mean, burning bush, okay, fire gets started. That's, but this is a bush that's on fire, but it's actually not burning. It's not being consumed. Now, I, I've often wondered if the bush had been burning for years and Moses just had never noticed it. You know, if he was too busy, because it doesn't say how it started. It just says one day he looks over and he sees this burning bush and he's got to go see what's going on over there. I wonder if he'd been too busy for years looking back at Egypt or worrying about himself or worrying about paying his bills. And the burning bush was there along along, and he just missed it. So he goes over to see this burning bush or not burning bush. And a voice stops him and says, Moses, Moses, and tells him to take off his shoes for the place he is standing is holy ground. This is another thing I always wondered about. Why is the ground holy? Is it because of the burning bush? I actually wonder if what God is doing is telling Moses, you know where you're standing, that's holy. Where you're standing is holy, because what makes it holy is my presence. And guess what? My presence isn't just limited to the bush. My presence is with you, which means wherever you step, you're walking on holy ground. One of the things I sometimes do, I don't know if I did it here or not, but when I install or ordain officers in the church, sometimes we do it barefoot. Just as a reminder that wherever we go, we are on holy ground. So he takes off his shoes 
And uh, the bush tells him what the plan is. And Moses says, yes, sir, we're going to do this, right? No, if you remember your story, Moses argues with the burning bush. Moses argues. Think about that for a second. Get this miraculous bush. It's burning, but it's not burning. It's speaking to you. And you say to the bush, are you sure you're talking to me? Like, are you sure that I'm the one and I can't speak really well and they're not going to respect me? I've been out here in the wilderness for a long time. Like, I think you're, you're trying to talk to somebody else, right? To a burning bush that called him my name. How many of us wish, I don't know what's going on. Uh, how many of us wish that God would speak to us like that? Lord, I would do it if you just gave me a burning bush, Right? And you said my name, and we had a little vision, we could have a little chat, and you could tell me exactly what. Except in the Bible, whenever stuff like that happens, we argue back. Okay, that's who we are. So, the bush talks Moses into it. So God sends Moses back to the promised land, and Pharaoh is there, and Moses goes before Pharaoh. This is probably, this is a new Pharaoh now, it's probably like a, like a brother or an uncle, to Moses at this point. And so he says, let my people go. And of course, Pharaoh does it right away, right? No, he won't do it. So we have the what? The plagues, the 10 of them. How many can you get? How many plagues can you remember? Think back to your Sunday school. I couldn't name them all either. So you're, you're safe. How many can we get? Locusts, frogs, blood, water to blood. Flies or gnats. Yeah, well, gnats is another one. Yeah, darkness. Boils. Oh, you guys are doing really good. This is a good Sunday school church. What? Yeah, yep. River to blood. Pestilence with the livestock. There's thunder of hail and fire that comes down. And then, of course, the death of the firstborn. The Passover story. If you go back and actually study this, what you find is that all of these relate to certain gods that were related to the Egyptians. Okay, so they tended to worship crocodiles because they were the rulers of the water, right? So when the water turns to blood, okay, when locusts come, this is all actually poking right at specific gods of the Egyptians. But each time, the Pharaoh's heart was hardened. It's actually funny if you read it, because sometimes Pharaoh hardens his own heart. Sometimes the text says Pharaoh's heart is hardened, almost like passively. And sometimes the text actually says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. That God seems to know that Pharaoh is going to get there and he is going to go ahead and keep this conflict going. Finally, Pharaoh lets the people go only to change his mind and send the chariots out after them. Remember this story? The parting of the Red Sea and the people go across on dry land and then the chariots are destroyed. Well, now the people are out in the desert. They're finally free. But the problem for them is it's not all it's cracked up to be. First of all, I'm not sure Moses knows where he's going because we just keep wandering around. We're living out in the desert. We have no income. We have no support. They're hungry, they're thirsty, and they complain about it. And I have four children, and I have been on road trips before, and I know exactly how this goes. Okay? How much longer? I'm hungry. He's touching me. Are we there yet? Okay, they're going through the desert, and they are fighting. They are immature. 
course, they've been slaves for generations now. They don't know what it's like to really be a person. They're kids. So God takes care of them. He provides every morning a substance on the ground. What's the name of that substance? Manna. Do you know what manna actually means? In Hebrew, it's actually a question. It's called, what is it? (laughs) It's called, what is it? So somebody walks out in the morning, and they're like, what is it? And they're like, yep, that's what we'll call it. Manna. What is it? We're going to just call it that. I'm going up a little bit. We'll see if we can help here. So when they get tired of this manna stuff that's on the ground, which, which only lasts for a day, they can't save it. So every day they have to rely on God for what they need today, and then tomorrow they get some more. But they get tired of it, and finally God gives them quail. And the description of the quail is, is very funny. Every morning, it, we can't tell if the quail are like flying in circles around the camp or if they're just kind of hanging out around the camp. But every morning they can go and catch these quail. When they need water, God... Uh, has Moses hit a rock in the staff uh, with his staff, and it gives water. God guides them directly by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. This is important because remember, what's Israel's relationship with God up until this point? They're not a nation. They don't have religion. They don't have a faith. They're a family, a family that God seems to have forgotten when they were in slavery, right? Family with these stories of these great promises of God, but they're not living in their holy land. They're not living in their promised land. They're living as slaves. But God is shaping them into something more. And to do this, God uses Moses. Moses goes up on Mount Sinai. God gives him the Ten Commandments, even writing them with his own hands. He gives him laws and expectations of how they're supposed to live. Moses then comes down from the mountain. He writes a lot of these things down. He gathers Aaron and 70 of the elders and they make sacrifices at an altar that he makes and they sort of commit themselves to God. And then Moses and Joshua, Joshua's kind of his right-hand man, uh, go back up the mountain to hear more instructions from God. And the text says he's up there for 40 days and for 40 nights. We get a lot of 40s in this story, right? 40 days, 40 nights, he's up on the mountain. In the meantime... As he's hearing about the, the details of the tabernacle, the lampstand, the altar, meanwhile, back in the camp, something bad is happening. And this story, in my opinion, epitomizes the life and ministry of Moses. So I'm going to pick this up in Exodus chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together with Aaron and said, uh, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said these, and he said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Okay, So he makes his calf out of everybody's jewelry. A lot of the jewelry, if you read the story, the Egyptians, a lot of them blessed the Israelites with gold and with things to to leave. So they came with some wealth when they left. And so he makes this golden calf and says, look, here's your God that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he 
he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation. Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Rose up to play. Probably they're going to worship. They don't know how to worship. They're probably going to worship in the style of these pagan Egyptians. So when we say they're going to sing and dance and play, it's probably not good behavior. Okay? Probably not proper church behavior. Okay? We don't quite know what that word play is. It is not a good word. Okay? And the Lord said to Moses, go down from your, for your people who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Who you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way I have commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. So God's ready, God's ready to bring the heat, okay? God's ready to bring the heat, okay? He, he has had enough. And I love that metaphor of a stiff-necked people, okay? So they got their view one way, but their neck is so stiff they can't turn it. So they're, they're, when they get set on a wrong way, they're going to just go. And isn't that us, too? But Moses implored the Lord, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Turn off your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I promised I will give to your offspring, and, it, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he spoke of bringing on his people. The, the word relent is the same word for repent. God repents. He turns from his decision, and that's what it really means to do, repent. Now Moses has to go down and try to get the people to do the exact same thing. And uh, it's interesting how he does it. Then Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people and they shout, as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. So Joshua, as they come down and he hears all this play and all this whatever they're doing, this crazy stuff in front of the golden calf, he says, there's a war, there's a battle. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or a sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp, he saw the calf and the dancing. Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf and they, that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it into powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. Did you ever catch that detail? Sometimes when we make idols, when we set up things ahead of God, one of the things we need to do is taste how bitter those are. We need to taste how bitter some of those things are because we need to learn that those things are not going to fulfill the promises that you think they're going to. And so I've seen this many a time in people's lives, that they make idols out of their job, that they make idols out of their children, that they make idols out of their reputation, they make idols out of money, and they make idols out of 
name it. And eventually they end up tasting the bitterness of those idols. They end up learning the hard way that those idols let you down and they don't fulfill everything that you thought they were going to. Moses understands that. Moses understands that. So he grinds it down to a powder, puts it in water, and he forces the people to drink it so that they would never be tempted to do that again. This moment is important because it highlights the life and ministry of Moses. Moses gave the the commandments, he set up the laws, he did all of this, built the tabernacle, started the sacrifice, started the priesthood. He would even meet with God face to face. And when he would come back into the camp, his face would be so shiny from being in the presence of God that it would scare people. So we're told that Moses had to wear a veil. He had to wear a veil so that people couldn't quite see the shininess of God because it scared them too much. And here's how his life is summarized in Deuteronomy 34 when he dies. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all this land. And for the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. The interesting word for me here is, there has not arisen a prophet in Israel like Moses. Do you think of Moses as a prophet? Most of us don't think of Moses as a prophet because we think of prophets as people who tell the future. That's primarily what we think. But if you read the prophets in the Bible, that's, they almost never do that, actually. Most of what the prophets do is interpret the past because they're actually focused on the present, the present behavior. In the Bible, prophets primarily do two things. They relay messages from the Lord. So they, they get a vision or they get a word from the Lord and they give it to the people. That's a prophet. Moses definitely did that, right? Well, why do prophets in the Bible do that? They do that to call people to new life. The main focus of a prophet is behavior in the present. And that is exactly the struggle that Moses lived his entire life, was trying to get these people who were slaves to live their lives differently. I've heard it described this way, and I I can't find for the life of me who said this originally. I can find all kinds of people who have said it since, though. That it took God 40 days to get Israel out of Egypt. And it took 40 years for God to get Egypt out of Israel. Let me say it again. It took 40 days for God to get the people out of Egypt, but it took 40 years for God to get the Egypt out of the people. That they could not get this. They could not mentally understand the way that the world was different. They kept going back to the way things were in Egypt. And they kept asking to go back to Egypt. They kept trying to say, well, at least there we had food. Yeah, but you were slaves, right? They're stiff-necked people. They keep wanting to turn around and go back there. And it took Moses, his whole ministry, to try to get them to follow God and stop following their past and stop following their brokenness. And sometimes if you read the story, and I hope you'll read the story this week, you get frustrated with these people. Because all the time they want to turn back. All the time they're complaining about everything. Except that I'm exactly the same way. Except that I have so many parts of my life that are broken and yet I still can't fix them. So many parts of my life from my past that I still wrestle with that I can't seem to come out of. I mean, I, I am the, the stiff-necked people. 
Prophet Hosea sees this actually as God's purpose in the wilderness. Isaiah talks about Israel as a woman, in fact, Hosea. Hosea makes a big deal about how this, the, the, the woman of Israel has been an unfaithful woman. And in Isaiah, Hosea chapter 2, verse 14, he says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. So Hosea looks back at the wilderness, the 40 years, and he says, you know what God was trying to do? He was trying to allure Israel. He was trying to woo them. Okay? The 40 years of Israel, that's, it's a date. Okay? It's a honeymoon. And God is trying to say, no, 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 don't think like that anymore. Think like this now. And that's why there's sacrifices. And that's why there's temples. And that's why there's a tabernacle. That's why all this stuff takes place. Because God is trying to say to Israel, no, 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 no. Think like this. Live like this. Love like this. Worship like this. And they struggle. As do we a lot. Because sometimes we have to travel the wilderness if we're going to learn to trust God. Sometimes God puts us to the wilderness on purpose. And we don't know where we are and we don't know what we're doing. Why? So that we have to rely on him. Rely on him for the daily things that we need. Sometimes God has us taste the bitterness of the idols we create. So we lose our taste for them and we actually find where we really can find sustenance. So for 40 years, Moses leads his stiff-necked people. You know what else we find? We find that Moses has his own trouble. That Moses has his own trouble believing in this God. That Moses has this Egypt in him too and he's got to try to get to this freedom in his own life. And there's a couple of times specifically where, God, where the people complain and, God, and Moses does not trust in God and he does not defend God. And so one of the punishments is that God, Moses doesn't actually get to go in the promised land. He dies on Mount Nebo in present day Jordan across the Jordan River just above the Dead Sea. He goes up there, he can see a whole bunch of the land. But there he dies, and it says that God personally buries him. And I want to tell you that God has been in the Exodus business ever since. Joshua leads the people into the promised land, but more importantly, Jesus, the ultimate prophet, leads us into new life by his own sacrifice. He becomes the ultimate tabernacle, becomes the ultimate priest, the ultimate sacrifice. Why? To call us to new life. So here's my question for you. Where are you still in Egypt? Where in your life have you not really surrendered to God as your Lord? Where have you let other idols been in? Where have you tasted the bitterness of those idols? How is God wooing you right now? Saying, come to me. Love me. Be with me. And where is God calling you like Moses to go help somebody else who's in slavery? Who around you is God showing you they're in Egypt? They're treated like a thing. They need freedom too. May we all on this 4th of July when we celebrate liberty and freedom, may we be people who are truly, truly free. And we may, may we help others find that same freedom. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.